This evening's talk <clears throat> is about transformation and relinquishment of afflictive states of mind. And beginning with a quote, I don't know who it's from actually, but uh, I'm quite sure it's from the Zen tradition. Pain, like pleasure, is an inevitable and temporary part of living. Suffering, however, is optional. Some years ago now, I attended a meeting of uh, Dhamma and Dharma teachers that included uh, teachers from many of the various Buddhist lineages. And in one of our discussions, the question, what is Buddhism, came up. The Dalai Lama, who was um, one of the guests of honor at this meeting, said that often his response to this question is that Buddhism is about certain kinds of mental training to eliminate all kinds of negative or afflictive emotions and all and the uh, and all traces of these emotions, uh, he said. And then he went on to define realization, liberation, as the complete purification of afflictive emotions. This definition of realization of nibbana being the complete purity of the heart the mind has been described as the mind the heart of an arahant in hearing his holiness the dalai lama speak of this there was a sense that he spoke from a very deep place of confidence in truly believing that this is possible in the many times that I have practiced over the years with Sayadaw Upandita and also with Pawak Sayadaw, both of these venerable teachers have spoken of this same possibility in similar ways over and over again. And of course in the suttas, the Buddha also often speaks of this aspect of liberation, this aspect of freedom, in the same way. As our confidence grows and as it deepens, we too begin to get at least some sense uh, that this is our possibility. In its deepest sense, the basic aim of these teachings and these practices isn't about what we ordinarily think of as having a happy life in this lifetime. And so, here you all are, making physical and mental efforts in the service of the purification of the mind, the purification of the heart. Here, in retreat, and in our life outside of retreat, we come to know, we come to directly experience that through our practice, 
through our physical and mental efforts, certain states of mind increase, others decrease. And we begin to find that at least to some degree, we've let go of what's unwholesome. We've let go at least to some degree of what brings suffering, what's harmful to ourself, and what's harmful to others. And we begin to find that the wholesome states of mind, of heart, are more and more often our experience. They're more readily available. They manifest more often in our life. And so our feeling of connection and confidence in these teachings and practices takes deeper root. Confidence in our own capacity to realize the teachings, to be successful in relationship to our practice in the immediacy of here and now grows, along with confidence in relationship to our deepest goals. And from the Buddha, from the Anguttara Nikaya, abandon what is unwholesome bhikkhus, o bhikkhus. One can abandon the unwholesome. If it were not possible, I would not ask you to do so. If this abandoning of the unwholesome would bring harm and suffering, I would not ask you to abandon it. But as the abandoning of the unwholesome brings benefit and happiness, therefore I say, abandon what is unwholesome. Cultivate what is wholesome, O bhikkhus. One can cultivate the wholesome. If it were not feasible, I would not ask you to do it. If this cultivation of the wholesome would bring harm and suffering, I would not ask you to cultivate it. But as the cultivation of the wholesome brings benefit and happiness, therefore I say, cultivate what is wholesome. The extraordinary wisdom, metta, and compassion of the Buddha. The heart, mind of a Buddha sees only suffering and the end of suffering and encourages, exhorts those heading towards suffering to take care and to pay attention rather than judging them or condemning them. And the heart, mind of a Buddha in seeing those heading towards the end of suffering rejoices for them. This uh, approach to life, this way of seeing, can be a great inspiration, inspiring feelings of self-confidence within us. It can be done. I can do it. Over the years of my practice, there certainly uh, have been times when I've experienced various difficulties within myself in relationship to the teaching and practice. And when I've been able to be really very honest and humble about it with myself, I've seen that most of the time it's been because I was afraid. I was afraid that I wasn't 
capable of actualizing the teachings. And I've also found that when I've been filled with confidence in relationship to myself, that my love and gratitude for the teachings, as well as for my own practice, has deepened and has grown. The Venerable Upandita and the Venerable Pawak Sayadaw have both said that we must always approach things with the attitude that you can be successful. That this is what the Buddha taught. Once in a practice interview with Pawak Sayadaw, I went in and I said, this is too hard. It's just too hard. And Pawak Sayadaw looked at me with a great, soft kindness in his eyes and a light laughter. And he simply said, No, it isn't. (laughs) (laughs) And it's true. The suttas, the direct teachings of the Buddha, are really filled with this approach to practice. This evening we'll specifically explore a few of the difficult or afflictive states of mind that arise in our human experience. And also explore some of the ways that the Buddha encourages us to work with them in light of purification, in the light of the Dalai Lama's definition of liberation of the mind, liberation of the heart. It's as though... All of us have some skeletons in the closet. And the Buddha wasn't excluded from this. When he left the palace as a young man in search of freedom, in search of liberation from anguish and confusion, his search was grounded in finding liberation from his own experiences of suffering. He wasn't looking for the truth of awakening from an idealistic or from a philosophical stance. So these skeletons in the closet, the old and sometimes seemingly new anger, fear, resistance, judgments, doubts, sadnesses, grief, longings, strong desires, attachments, confusions, pains. It's a long list. There's more, but that's enough for right now. From our present life's experience and carried on from many, many lifetimes' experience. Some of these we may have mindfully met and seen with an open mind, an open heart. Some of them we've ignored or hidden away. In our practice, we open to whatever arises, including things that may have been tucked away, the so-called skeletons in the closet. And it's important to note here that it's not about dredging up, digging up afflictive states of mind. Most all of us need to discover the 
skeletons in order to find a really true depth of happiness in our life. Or we'll just continue living in delusion, thinking that we can be happy, but never really, truly being so. Meditation allows us to open the closet and to look into the boxes, so to say, to uncover what may have been hidden or maybe that we've hidden from or may be judged as unacceptable and buried away. The skeletons in the closet that we've been hauling around often for quite a long time and often unconsciously, unwittingly. The uh, poet and translator Stephen Mitchell uh, wrote his uh, version of the myth of Sisyphus. And I'd like to share this with you. These are This is Stephen Mitchell's uh, um, uh, version of the myth of Sisyphus. We tend to think of Sisyphus as a symbol of a tragic mortal hero, condemned by the gods to shoulder his rock sweatily up the mountain and again up the mountain forever. The truth is that Sisyphus is in love with the rock. He cherishes every roughness and every ounce of it. He talks to it, sings to it. It has become the mysterious other. He even dreams of it as he sleepwalks upward. Life is unimaginable without it looming always above him like a huge gray moon. He doesn't realize that at any moment he's permitted to step aside, let the rock hurtle to the bottom, and go home. Practice gives us some very powerful tools. The tools of mindfulness, concentration, investigation, metta, compassion, each of which helps us to open to our experience from the clarity of a focused mind and the heart of kindness, acceptance, and patience, enabling us to see clearly and to be able to go home. With mindfulness and concentration grounded in the kindness of a non-judgmental presence, our possibility is to realize that fear, anger, doubt, strong desire, attachment, sadness, irritation, judgment, worry, expectation, disappointment, really have no more control over us. And we begin to realize that the reactive habitual need to analyze it over and over and over again, or the habit of trying to get rid of it or fix it or trying to ignore it, or maybe the habit of deluding ourselves that with a seeming equanimity. You know, the old, oh, it's really nothing, really nothing kind of attitude. We begin to realize that none of these reactive habitual patterns serve us. When we begin to meet and see these 
reactive habit patterns within the heart of kindness, the door to clear seeing or seeing through is opened. The beginning of a healthy response rather than unconsciously dropping into old reactive patterns in relationship to afflictive emotions is born out of clearly connecting and a non-judgmental knowing this is how it is in this present moment. This is how it is. We leave everything as it is. Our rooms with all of the boxes opened and the skeletons uncovered. And we find that we can be present in this moment of life without the old habit of giving the past, be it 20 or 30 years ago, or maybe just a few moments ago, continued power over us. This is our possibility. There's a saying that comes from the time of the Buddha that goes like this. Rain saddens what is kept wrapped up, but never saddens what is open. Uncover then what is concealed, lest it be sodden by the rain. We can't really be free of something that we don't see or something that we ignore. The Sri Lankan monk Bhante Gunaratana in his book Mindfulness in Plain English says this, View all problems as challenges. Look upon negativities as, that arise as opportunities to learn and to grow. Don't run from them. Don't condemn yourself or bury your burden in saintly silence. You have a problem, he says. Great, he says. More grist for the mill. Rejoice. Dive in. Investigate. And I add, investigate within the heart of kindness. And so we sit quietly and watch ourselves, our mind, our body. All kinds of things come to the surface. Really the mind, or minds that aren't yet totally purified, are primarily a set of mental habits, conditioned habitual ways of thinking and feeling. To change, they must come to the surface and be acknowledged, accepted, and clearly seen. And this takes time. We can't hurry it. We simply resolve and persevere with patience. The rest will take care of itself. And sometimes there's resistance and fear to this opening. Anxiety, tension, worry, and doubt are created by and manifest to the degree of the strength of our resistance. Resistance is based in fear, and it can be a vicious circle. And so we practice with 
great gentleness and kindness and deep patience for and with ourself in through this process of opening to and relinquishing. Relinquishing our conditioned, habituated patterns of suffering. Relinquishing our addictions of mind. The uh, great Indian teacher Nisargadatta Maharaj said, Don't bully yourself. Violence will make you hard and rigid. Don't fight with what you take to be obstacles on your way. Just be interested in them. Watch them. Observe. Inquire. Let anything happen, good or bad, but don't let yourself be submerged by what happens. I'd like to take a, a bit of a look now at what is maybe the most subtle and yet one of the most deeply pervasive aspects of suffering in this life, which is so directly connected to the suffering that we experience in relationship to difficult emotions. The suffering that's inherent in ignoring the truth that everything in this world, everything in this universe, comes into being through the combination of a multitude of conditions. Everything is related. One thing leads to another. Because of this, that. Because of that, this. Everything is contingent and thus conditional. Everything is in relationship. And in truth, in an infinitude of changing relationships, including the arising of fear, anger, worry, sadness, judgment, doubt, strong desires, attachments, etc. And yet, so often, we believe that the opposite of this truth is the reality of things. Taking our experience and things to be as though they're quite solidly and singularly in place and here to stay, which will always eventually create suffering for ourselves and for others. We grasp onto the past and project into the imaginary future, solidifying both in our mind and yet life just keeps rolling along. The good news is that an amazing thing about suffering itself is that it too is a conditional, totally relative, contingent aspect of life. It's not an absolute. Here in Taos, during the midsummer (coughs) and early fall seasons, we have what we call our monsoon season, although it seems to have started a little bit early this year. (laughs) And in the big open sky here in Taos and in the Ski Valley, we often have huge arches of rainbows appearing, often even double rainbows. A rainbow appears because 
of particular conditions coming together. Just the right amount of moisture in the atmosphere. The angle of the light being just right. And then, of course, one has to be in the right place at the right time and looking in the right direction. And it all changes so very quickly. Everything in life, including ourselves, meaning our experiences of body, mind, and heart, are like a rainbow. The coming together of a changing set of conditions that are totally relative, related, contingent, conditional, and empty in and of themselves. And it's so obvious with rainbows. But not so for most of us with the more solidly appearing and sticky mental and physical phenomena that we experience. Our rainbow body, our rainbow mind, including emotional states, which for many of us can be the experiences that we most readily identify with and that we most quickly get stuck in. Thinking of things and experiences, the various states and (coughs) moods of our mind as permanent, unchanging, and identifying any of these as me, mine, I, will inevitably bring suffering. The degree to which we grasp, cling, and identify with our experience, whatever it may be, pleasant or unpleasant physical or mental experience, the degree with which we grasp, cling, and identify with our experience, this is the degree to which we'll suffer. Our practice is about really, truly being in the present. This present moment. (coughs) This present moment. This one. Just as it is. Right now. And right now. (coughs) And right now. It's not the present moment that causes suffering. It's the desire for it to last or the desire for this moment to be different that causes us to suffer. Liberation isn't rooted in anything imaginary, pretended, hoped for, wished for, philosophized about, or avoided, or ignored. And as probably all of you know, we have a saying in English, ignorance is bliss. Well, the fact is, ignorance is not bliss. In the clarity of the Buddha's teachings, ignorance is ignorance, and bliss is bliss with, in fact, ignorance providing the fertile ground that delusion needs in order to sprout. Delusion manifests as an unknowing, 
because of the lack of penetration or the concealment of the real nature of things. With this delusion of unknowing, there's an absence of right or true understanding that's experienced as what's called the mental blindness or mental darkness of delusion, which is caused by the lack of careful and wise attention. This is really the root of all that's unwholesome. But fortunately, ignorance and delusion are only conditioned, impermanent, contingent states of suffering. Just two of the many hues of the ephemeral rainbow of our experience. So, going on now with exploring a few specific hues of the rainbow of emotional states and beginning with fear. In our practice and in our life outside of a formal practice setting, fear often appears in the guise of doubt, anxiety, worry, resistance, maybe experiences or feelings like, I won't attend to, I won't open to, I don't want to, or maybe, I can't, I can't, I just can't be, I'm, I'm not sure that I want to be with this experience this unfamiliar new experience or, or this old familiar experience or this particular strong emotional state or this pain in the body or this pleasurable experience. I just can't be with this moment of life and maybe feeling kind of frozen or caught or just simply unable to open to and receive the experience fully and deeply with a mindful presence. From this perspective, fear can manifest outwardly in relationship to situations and in relationship to other people as judgment or blaming the critical mind if we take it up, if we believe it. It's his fault. It's because she, it's because they, it's because this place, it's because of this weather, etc. This fear turned inward can manifest as self-judgment, self-blaming, self-doubt, self-criticism, maybe feelings of unworthiness, not being good enough, or maybe not j- just not being enough, maybe not doing it right, not able to do it right. Our practice, our life, our self, not being right, not being perfect, whatever that might mean to each of us, and it's different for each of us. Really, really this is all rooted in fear. I'd like to offer you another approach to 
perfection, which is probably uh, pretty different from how most of us have been conditioned uh, to think what it means to be a perfect person. And this comes from the uh, Taoist master Chang Tzu, his definition of perfection. The mind of a perfect woman or a perfect man is like a mirror. It grasps nothing. It expects nothing. It reflects but doesn't hold. Therefore, the perfect woman or man can act without effort. We may have a habit of getting caught in identifying with the mind of judgment or doubt or blaming and criticism inwardly in relationship to ourself and outwardly in relationship to others which actually is often a way of distracting ourselves from the fear that's lurking underneath. I think that often we're afraid of the fear, afraid to look directly at it, especially maybe if we've taken a peek and found that it might not have been so easy. Years ago, one of my teachers told me (laughs) Uh, when I came in and fearfully reported the experience of fear, he said to me, fear is just fear. Well, when he said this, uh, my inward response, I did not say this out loud, was, well, sure, that's easy for you to say. (laughs) So obviously, uh, some degree of uh, resistance, a fair degree, actually, of resistance, and quite a bit of irritation in this attitude, the thought that was going on. But eventually, I really did begin to see that, yes, fear is just fear. As we gently, open-heartedly persevere with our practice of mindfulness, our mindfulness-based practice, rooted in metta, rooted in kindness, towards ourself, we begin to be able to meet and receive fear, to come close to it, to look it in the eye, so to say, and not be so bound, not be so imprisoned by it, and not be shut off out of fear to the vastness of possibility. The uh, 12th century Persian poet Hafiz said, Fear is the cheapest room in the house. I would like to see you living in better conditions. As our mind and our heart get stronger, and our mindfulness and concentration and metta muscles develop, we can begin to acknowledge the presence of fear, accept that it is, and know that it doesn't need to run our life. It's not who we are. It's not mine. It's not me. It's not I. I am not a fearful person. Fear happens. 
Fear happens because of a multitude of conditions coming together in this moment. It's not an independent, solid something. The rising, the arising of fear in this moment is totally dependent on many, many conditions, some of which we can see and know, and many of which we don't know and may never, ever see. It may certainly be a moment of very intense experience, but when we begin to practice seeing clearly from this perspective, we begin to understand that it's not something solid or permanent, and it's clearly not me, not mine. And it's not that the energy of fear will never appear again. It's not that. We learn to be steadfast. We learn to stand in the fear, to lose the fear of fear itself and begin to see it clearly. We begin to see through it like we see through the hues of a rainbow. A few years ago, I uh, read uh, an article in the National Geographic magazine, and it was a story about uh, a woman named Gerland, a 40-year-old woman, mountain climber. She was the first woman to climb K2 in the Himalayas without oxygen. She climbed with a group, uh, one of whom was her husband, uh, Rolf. And in this article, uh, there was a piece of it that was talking about Rolf, her husband's relationship to fear, and Gerland's relationship to fear. And this is what uh, Rolf, Gerland's husband, said, or his approach, his relationship to fear. He, Rolf, relished how the sensation of fear in his stomach revealed the margins of his ability and compelled him to pay attention. And Ralph did not uh, uh, finish the climb. He turned, he turned around at some point because of this. Gerland, on the other hand, Gerland met fear with the quiet calm that possessed her when she was absorbed in what she had to do. When she kept herself completely focused on the task at hand, she didn't feel afraid. Gerilyn made it to the top of K2 without oxygen. And when she got up there, there were only two others in the group that made it with her. When she got up there, she took the little Buddha out of her backpack. She is a pra- is, was, is a practicing Buddhist. She took the little Buddha out of her backpack and placed it on the top of K2. The Buddha's teachings offer us the possibility of a different perspective, a different relationship to things than how most of us have been conditioned, how most of us have been patterned. It doesn't work to ignore or try to suppress difficult energies because what happens? They just reappear. Putting a a tight lid on emotional states actually blocks and deadens our sensitivities, keeping the possibility of purification at bay. 
And of course, it's certainly not about blindly acting out or blindly believing our afflictive emotions. This is like watering and fertilizing the seeds of our habit patterns. And something uh, uh, important to remember, and I am repeating myself here, is that our practice is not about purposefully dredging up, purposefully or purposefully miring in analytically with all of the historical and projected stories that inspire emotional states. The strong energies of fear and anger can really color our entire experience when we're caught and swept away in them. To practice and to understand, we need to be able to come very close to our immediate experience, an intimacy of connection rooted in kindness, with a very focused and mindful attention. With a mindfulness-based practice, this intimacy is in the spirit of investigation, in the spirit of exploration, without pushing away or pulling away from experience or desiring it to be different. So now, taking a look at anger. In the classical teachings, anger is likened to a pond that's on top of a boiling spring. When we're angry, we can't see very far. We can't see clearly. Anger is a very strong and powerful energy. From this perspective, it actually can be quite seductive. A while ago, I knew someone whose energy was fueled primarily by anger. She was very attached and identified with her anger. And in fact, she spoke about really liking her anger. She said that she felt strong and powerful in the anger. But unfortunately, she was not a happy person. She was kind of like a porcupine. (laughs) People would begin to get close to her and they would feel the sharp needles, the sharp sting of her anger, and they would move away. Consequently, she was a very lonely person. And yet so identified in her mind as an angry person and so afraid that she would lose herself, meaning lose her energy and her power, lose what she felt was the fuel for her life if she let go of anger. It takes a tremendous honesty and humility to really, truly practice. And it sometimes, not sometimes, it always takes a lot of mindfulness and metta energy directed towards ourself to open to, be with, and to clearly see things as they are. Mindfulness and metta don't cover over anger, fear, jealousy, irritation. Practice changes our mind. It's about, in fact, making the choice to transform our mind, to transform our heart, so that we embody love, wisdom, and compassion. It's a courageous choice. It actually opens the heart and the mind. 
and gives strength to not turn away, to not distract ourselves, to not pretend anything, but in fact to stay still, be here, be present in relationship with what is. It's a choice to see and experience things just as they are, with the very natural strength that comes from the expanding capacity of our heart and mind. In the mid-1990s, over a consecutive two-year period, I taught in Poland. The first year was for two months, and then the second year was for one month. And one student who uh, stayed for the whole two months of practice that first year was a man in his early 40s, a very uh, successful big city businessman from Warsaw who had um, diligently practiced Zen, Karate, and Aikido for about 10 years uh, prior to coming to this two-month retreat, uh, Vipassana Metta retreat, that I was offering in Poland. This man had grown up in a home environment with a very ill-tempered, angry father and uncle, living, as he said, with his heart burning with fear much of the time, throughout his childhood. And with this fear still present in his adult life. But much more obvious to him was the fact that he'd in fact learned and taken on the habits of thought, words, and actions of this same ill temper. And he described himself as a man of heavy emotions, which was becoming more and more uncomfortable as his practice developed and deepened. Unlike his father and his uncle, he had begun, in fact, to see himself more and more clearly through his martial arts practices and through his interest in Buddhism and his practice of meditation. For the full year following the two-month retreat in Prajeka, Poland, This man diligently and very mindfully practiced metta with one particular phrase. It's not a traditional phrase, but this is the one he used. May I accept myself fully, unconditionally, just as I am in this present moment. As the year progressed, he recognized his habituated ill temper beginning to arise sooner and sooner and sooner in its process. Consequently, he was able to let it go more and more often. He returned to Projeka Poland for a month of retreat the following year as a much-changed and much-happier man. What is often overlooked is the disastrous effects of anger, the harm that anger does to oneself. The first person hurt is always the one who is angry. An angry mind is a suffering mind. An angry mind is agitated, tight, narrow, constricted. The quality of awareness changes. Clear seeing 
and perspective vanish. One often feels restless and driven. Nothing's satisfying. Sleep can be very difficult. The body's tense. And with anger, the sense of self looms very large, as does the sense of the other. One of the primary reasons that anger is so painful is that it very quickly creates a sharp separation between self and other. It's as though a line is drawn that isn't to be passed, with every each and every angry moment deepening the imprint of anger in the mind stream. Something that's both amazing, simple, and difficult to see is that irritation, anger, fear, rage, and hate develop from a momentary, unpleasant feeling that went unnoticed. Again, pointing to the totally conditional nature of afflictive states of mind. And the importance in our practice of seeing the momentary unpleasant or pleasant feeling tone that shows up in relationship to experience. The point at which we become aware of anger or any other afflictive state of mind depends on the quality, the focused strength and depth of our attention. So how can we work with anger through our practice? Just like any other emotional state of mind, anger is not solid. It's made up of many, many different components. Thoughts, stories spinning out. A specific mood of the mind, an emotional tone. And various changing bodily sensations. With all of it coming and going, arising and passing. As soon as you see the thoughts that are spinning out the stories of anger, or fear, or self-judgment, or sadness, or doubt, greed, clinging, expectation, or disappointment, it's very helpful to just try to let them go. Just let them drop away. Give them no mind, as I call it. These thoughts aren't only the expression of anger, they're also feeding the anger. They're like fertilizer for the angry mind. So let the stories go and bring the attention directly into the sensations in the body, feeling the emotions directly and in itself, in themselves, without the story. So what are you feeling? What are you experiencing? Maybe heat, tightness, pressure, heaviness, contraction, vibration. Where is it? And very important, how is it changing? Notice the mind. In this case meaning, 
at this point notice what your relationship is to these sensations, in this case of anger. Is there resistance? So, more contraction. Really give this your best attention. Feel it, see it, know it. Is there interest grounded in kindness, grounded in acceptance of the sensations in your body? Take a look. And in the service of acceptance, kindness, and patience, if the emotion is too strong to sit with, don't force yourself to sit with it. Do some walking meditation. You might even walk a bit faster than you usually do. Bring your attention directly into the body and maybe also into the breath with movement, with walking. Or you might open up to the natural world outside. The trees in conjunction with the wide open spaciousness of the sky. The smells. The warmth of the sun and the air touching the skin. Or the moisture of the raindrops touching the skin. Take an interest. Notice the birds chipmunks, the small creatures of the world. Don't indulge thinking. Stay mindful in the present moment, in the physical world, and in the body, and also in the breath. In those moments of a connected present moment attention, afflictive emotion disappears. It isn't present. The ease, the sense of well-being that arises out of a completely connected present moment attention is actually quite amazing. Beyond compare, in a quietly wonderful way. Resting in the natural world can be an immediate experience in itself and a clear mirror of ease for us. So remember the mountain climber Garland's relationship to fear. And uh, from the great Indian teacher Nisargadatta Maharaj, who I think I mentioned the other day, He often taught in dialogue with his students. And this is a very brief dialogue between Nisargadatta Maharaj and one of his students. The student said, what is the real cause of suffering? And Nisargadatta Maharaj responded, self-identification with the limited. Sensations as such, however, however strong, do not cause suffering. It's the mind, bewildered by wrong ideas, addicted to thinking, I am this, I am that, that fears loss and craves gain and suffers when frustrated. The truth of the matter is that the energy that's present in strong emotional states 
the energy doesn't disappear. The energy isn't lost in the purification and wisdom that practice affords us. We don't lose the energy in clear seeing that's free of ego interest with a non-self-centered presence that isn't exclusively or predominantly in pursuit of our own personal advantages such as power or control or pleasure or status or prestige or recognition with a clear non-self-absorbed mindful attention based (coughs) in the heart of kindness therein lies the possibility of the relinquishment and the transformation of the strong energies of fear, anger, greed, attachment, sadness, etc. And we'll look at this a little bit more in a little while. So now I'd like to spend uh, just a little bit of time exploring the wanting mind, states of strong desire, greed, clinging, attachment. And uh, as Sayadaw mentioned a few days ago, classically unwholesome desire, clinging, attachment in the mind is likened, likened to a pond that's been filled with dye. We aren't able to see the bottom. Our vision's obscured. When our heart, our mind, is clouded, we're caught in the energies of greed and attachment. We're blinded by desire. A blatant and current example of this, with greed being the root of the current worldwide environmental crisis, people blindly acting out of enormous greed causing enormous personal and global suffering. This is rooted in the desire that comes out of misunderstanding. The desires we project into the future, for instance, hoping, dreaming, fantasizing about what we think we need to get and how we think we need to be in order for us to be contented, to be at ease in our life the thoughts that the satisfaction of a particular desire will give us something that in fact it won't, that in fact it can't. And there are healthy, worthy, wholesome desires. All desire is not a bad thing. For instance, it's certainly a part of what got you here to this retreat. In light of our exploration this evening, I'd like to uh, share uh, a prayer, uh, a personal practice, I was told, was uh, from uh, Mother Teresa, Mother Teresa's. Uh, and this was uh, actually sent to me in the mail. It's uh, the classical, or in, in Catholicism, the classical title is The Litany of Humility. And it was uh, told, I was told that this was what Mother Teresa practiced every day. I'm changing one word. She says, deliver me, O Jesus. I'm saying, deliver me, O Dhamma. (laughs) (laughs) Deliver me, O Dhamma, from the desire of being loved, from the desire of being extolled, 
from the desire of being honored, from the desire of being praised, from the desire of being preferred, from the desire of being consulted, from the desire of being approved, from the desire of being popular, from the fear of being humiliated, from the fear of being despised, from the fear of suffering rebukes, from the fear of being slandered, from the fear of being forgotten, from the fear of being wronged, from the fear of being ridiculed, from the fear of being suspected. I think nothing's left out there. Uh, After I received this and read it, uh, very shortly after, uh, I got a phone call from a friend. And I said, I just got this in the mail. I have to read it out loud. So I read it out loud to him uh, over the phone. And his response was, oh my God, have I got a lot to do. (laughs) True. We have a lot to do. But I, every time I read this, I, again, find it very inspiring, quite inspiring. Many of us can become uh, quite uh, attached to getting or trying to keep certain objects of our desire and also expend an incredible amount of time and energy trying to hold on to or get something back. Or we can spend enormous amounts of time and energy trying to keep some experience or someone from changing. And maybe that's even happened here in retreat. Maybe the particularly wonderful sitting you had uh, the other day Or maybe even uh, some wonderful sit that you had at a particular period of practice, maybe on your last retreat or five years ago. It's the contraction, the clinging, the attachment, and the self-centeredness, the identification around desire that is the problem. I think that we could safely say that Attachment is the biggest problem in the world. So a really good question you might ask yourself every once in a while is, how driven am I by my desires? So a very simple and quite mundane personal example. A number of years ago now, I was um, at a retreat center here in New Mexico, that has some of the most beautiful flower gardens that I'd ever seen. And I was walking along uh, next to one of these gardens, and I noticed a very sweet smell. So I followed my nose to where the smell was coming from, to this particular flower. And I got down on the ground very close to the flower and really took in the smell. Very present. Aware of the pleasantness of the experience. And then I got caught. I was teaching at this retreat, and I had to go and do something else. But I really just wanted to stay there and continue experiencing that wonderfully sweet smell. So with that next moment of clinging and not being willing to let go and to go on, the pleasantness of the experience of the 
previous moment was gone. And I was experiencing a tightness in the body and a degree of burning irritation in the heart and in the mind. Well, I did get up and I walked away to do what needed to be done next. But there was still some degree of clinging to the sweet smell, even though it was totally gone from my field of experience. I was attached to the memory of it, wanting it back. Planning, in fact, when I could get back to that garden and imagining how wonderful it would be later when I finally got back there. What just a moment ago was a moment of pleasantness was no longer pleasant, but rather a moment of being caught in the grip of my clinging mind, a moment of suffering. And as you all know, it happens very quickly. To sustain and deepen in and with our practice, two of the most essential qualities of mind and heart that are required of us are honesty and humility. Self-deception, self-delusion, and clear sensing, seeing, and knowing are mutually incompatible. Vimala Thakar, who was one of Krishnamurti's closest students and who was a quite a profound and powerful teacher in her own right, said this about humility. These are her words. That is the only austerity that is required of an inquirer, the austerity of humility to see things as they are, to see my inner being as it is, good or bad, to observe it as it is without defending it, without justifying it, without interpreting or judging it, without taking pride in it, and without relegating the responsibility of those states to other people. Humility is the perennial source of energy or freshness. Humility enables you to learn, keeps you pliable, perhaps to the last breath, I hope, she says. As we begin to sense, see, and know greed and clinging, we find that we're experiencing a kind of tension, stress, a burning, burning desire. For many people, there's often some confusion, some delusion uh, in relationship to this state of desire, this yearning, this attachment, and that it's thought that it feels good, and it's even sometimes confused with love, until we begin to see it and know it clearly. The Buddha talked about everything burning. The eye is burning. Eye consciousness is burning. The ear is burning. Ear consciousness is burning. And he goes on through each of the six sense doors this way. And then he goes on to say, burning of what? burning of desire, burning of hatred, jealousy, fear, burning with the fire of confusion. Some years ago, I I found a recipe uh, 
in an old inquiring mind. Some of you may remember that wonderful magazine, a journal. Um, uh, this was a long time ago that I found this. And at risk of uh, giving you uh, a recipe that maybe you already have and uh, maybe occasionally cook up, I'd like to share this with you. So the ingredients. The, it's a recipe for unhappiness. Ingredients. One cup of what is. One cup of inability to accept what is. Three tablespoons of complaints. One teaspoon of light whining. A quarter pound of alternate <coughs> scenario, preferably unattainable. One bunch of actual reality. One pint of idealized worldview. Two teaspoons of perfection. And four sprigs of envy, minced for garnish. And here's what you do with it all. In a large bowl, whisk together what is with an equal amount of inability to accept what is. Stir in complaints and let sit until brooding and sulking set in. Add a dash of light whining, especially in the company of friends, but be careful not to overseason or they won't hang around. In a separate bowl, add alternate scenario to actual reality from your garden and separate leaves from stems. Then try to reattach leaves in exact pattern that existed before separation. Pour in idealized worldview and process in food processor using on and off turns. When mixture is pureed, add to add it to what is an inability to accept what is and blend. Add exactly two teaspoons of perfection and let stand until tears form. Garnish with minced envy and serve immediately. <laughs> Familiar? <laughs> so, uh, the same teaching, uh, but uh, with quite a different perspective. This one comes from the Chinese sage Nan Shin. By not quite accepting because they do not please us, things that are so. We spend our entire lives making meaningless gestures somewhere next door to reality. The Buddha offers us another recipe. The recipe of cultivating a strong and clear mindfulness, concentration, investigation rooted in kindness that meets the experience of the moment and sees it clearly just as it is. We can actually learn to experience the extremes and the subtleties of afflictive emotions without getting caught up or swept away and being overcome by them. It's as though we learn to see them so clearly that we see through them and we see their nature, just like we see through the colors of a rainbow. And one way, maybe not your usual way, that you might consider emotional states in relationship to your practice is that they are the nourishing mud in which the lotuses of compassion, generosity, sensitivity, and wisdom can take root 
and blossom. And this is from the Vimalakirti Sutra from the Mahayana, Buddhist Mahayana tradition. Flowers like blue lotus and red lotus and white lotus do not grow on the dry ground in the wilderness, but grow in the swamps and mud banks. Just so, the Buddha qualities grow in those living beings who are like swamps and mud banks of passions. For me, uh, and probably for some of you, uh, this teaching is really an acknowledgement that as human beings, we experience many strong and difficult emotions, the mud banks of passions. It's not that something's gone wrong. So not to pretend to ourselves or to pretend to others that we don't feel these things. This is our human experience. This is what we have to work with. This is part of our path. The suffering, the anguish, the confusion that's felt in relationship with identification with afflictive emotions, with what are sometimes called the poisons of self-centered existence are, for many people, a potent aspect of the process of awakening, with these poisons being transformed through practice into what are sometimes called the nectars or Buddha wisdoms. Afflictive emotions or cankers, as the Buddha often called them, transformed into purified energies. When the thread of self is pulled out, strong emotional states are digested into wisdom. So for just a brief moment now, looking at just a few of these emotional states and their transformative possibilities. Anger without the self, no self-grasping, transforms into mirror-like wisdom. The heart, the mind, reflecting clearly. It's from this that appropriate action springs. Wanting, strong desire, without the self-centered quality, without self-referencing, without self-grasping, transforms into the wisdom of clear, discriminating awareness. Sadness without self with no self-grasping, has the possibility of digesting, transforming into the heart of metta and great compassion. Fear without self is digested into the great strong heart of metta, compassion, and equanimity, bringing us the capacity to connect without fear or judgment. In the recipe that we've inherited from the Buddha, we learn to let go of, to relinquish what causes the burning. And in this letting go, we find what is sometimes described as the place of coolness, the place of coolness and luminosity in our heart and mind, and the place of freedom from the burning, the end of suffering. And then, 
What is seen is just the seen. What is heard is just the heard. What is felt is just the felt. What is known is just the known. Nothing added or needing to be added and nothing taken away or needing to be taken away. As our practice takes deeper root and blossoms, we begin to know that this moment is just enough, just as it is. And we begin to know through our own experience that liberation is available through our diligent practice. Liberation is available through non-clinging. And I'd like to close the talk this evening with a poem. It's called Hokusai Says. It's by uh, Roger Keyes. And uh, for those of you that don't know, Hokusai was a, a, a very, is, he's not alive anymore, but was a very famous Japanese painter. And his most famous painting is a, a painting of a huge wave. And it's lapping over. And uh, the lapping edges of the wave look like fingers reaching out and reaching down and inside underneath the wave is a little boat that's filled with people and this is the poem Hokusai says look carefully he says pay attention notice he says keep looking stay curious He says there's no end to seeing. He says look forward to getting old. He says keep changing. You just get more who you really are. He says get stuck, accept it, repeat yourself as long as it's interesting. He says keep doing what you love. He says keep praying. He says each one of us is a child. Every one of us is ancient. Every one of us has a body. He says every one of us is frightened. He says every one of us has to find a way to live with fear. He says everything is alive. Shells, buildings, people, fish, mountains, trees. Wood is alive. Water is alive. Everything has its own life. Everything lives inside us. He says live with the world inside you. He said it doesn't matter if you draw or write books. It doesn't matter if you saw wood or catch fish. It doesn't matter if you sit at home and stare at the ants on your veranda or the shadows of the trees and grasses in your garden. It matters that you care. It matters that you feel. It matters that you notice. It matters that life lives through you. Contentment is life living through you. Joy is life living through you. Satisfaction and strength are life living through you. Peace is life living through you. He says, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Look, feel. Let life take you by the hand. Let life live through you. And let's sit quietly for just a moment. Thank you for listening. 
To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.